It's the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Sam Dolby. And I'm Susie Ferguson. Today, our guest is Dr. Alp Eren Topal, who is a specialist in Ottoman political thought in the long durée. He completed his PhD at Bilkent and will start a Marie Curie Fellowship at University of Oslo in September. Thanks so much for joining us, Alp. Thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Our conversation today will be about medical metaphors in Ottoman political thought. In other words, how Ottoman statesmen talked about politics, the state, and social life by using concepts of medicine and the body. We wanted to start off, Alp, by having you read a fascinating example from your research, which is part of a working paper co-authored with Einar Wigan of University of Oslo, who has previously been a podcast guest. This particular quote is uh, from Zia Pasha uh, in late 1860s, uh, and he has this brief history of the Ottoman Empire. And in the conclusion, he has this very amazing passage where he narrates the history of Ottoman Empire in terms of various illnesses. Quote, With the blows from oppressors, the state contracted yellow fever, and occasionally its situation got worse. Although its pain was temporarily relieved with the treatment from the Köprülü viziers, the Persian campaign of Ahmed III and Mahmud I upset it again and the stomach problem deepened. Upon this sickness, the Treaty of Küçükkaynarca has opened a wound in its heart and it fell bedridden. Mahmud II ran to its aid, but as the sapling from Kainarja bore fruit 40 years later, the Greek revolt led to a carbuncle in the bosom of the state, the Europeans gave up hope on its life and began to draw maps to dissect it accordingly. But of all the ailments, the military weakness, that is the upset stomach, was the most painful, and when Mahmud II succeeded in abolishing the Janissaries, the patient opened its eyes finally. Still, the Treaty of Adrianople worsened the wound in the heart, and its recovery was interrupted, and the Sultan had grown tired. But at that instant, Reshid Pasha once again ran to its aid and instituted Tanzimat. Help! this passage is striking to me for a number of reasons. One, I want to know why military strength dissolving is akin to an upset stomach. But also, it's so interesting to me because, uh, as you note in a working paper of yours right now, the Ottoman Empire is so often thought of as the sick man of Europe to denote its lack of political power in the 19th century. And here you have one of the foremost young Ottoman intellectuals actually describing the empire in terms of sickness. What appealed to you about this passage when you first saw it? Uh, how brief and to the point it was. You know, just to 300 years of Ottoman history, just summarized uh, and made sense of. Actually, that was something quite prevalent in young Ottoman writing. At that time, in 1860s, already all Europeans were talking about Ottoman Empire as the sick man. That was a very common uh, reference. Uh, so it seems they, they were painfully aware of this. Mm -hmm. And uh, many of the problems they were criticizing with Ottoman administration and society were expressed in such terms. There's one other reference I remember, for instance, that says, you know, okay, there are so many wounds and illnesses in this body we don't really know which one will lead to its death. So it's impossible to tell. And he says, okay, but probably it will be the uh, illness reg with regard to the treasury, mm -hmm. for instance. So, the, yeah, they, they use these kinds of uh, references and metaphors a lot. 
I don't think there is much consistency in there. You know, they are both using uh, certain archaic medical mm-hmm. knowledges, but also the more uh, contemporary acquired, mm-hmm. you know, modern mm-hmm. medicine, yeah. uh, vocab- modern modern medical vocabulary in, this, in their descriptions. It's a bit of a mess. So one thing we wanted to know, actually, was sort of what how how new was this idea that the state could be likened to a body and that the problems in the political power, the military trajectory of the state could be described as illnesses or ailments or wounds? Well, uh, the idea of likening or comparing the state to a body is very old. It goes back even before Ottomans. Uh, but of course, wounds and ailments, diseases are more modern. The idea of drawing an analogy between a human body and a political body is one of the most prevalent tropes, not in the uh, only in the Middle East or Ottoman Empire, but in most of the old world. So how early do we see some of these metaphors of, of the body being used to describe states? In Ottoman Empire, it starts already in 15th century. And, uh, and they're drawing on... Uh, mostly the Galenic medicine okay. that was uh, acquired from Persian philosophy, basically, mm-hmm. which was uh, acquired from the translations of you know, Aristotelian ethics, etc. So it appears Galenic medicine becomes, uh, that that's what they draw on mainly in the uh, early modern period up until 18th century. And ma- sorry, maybe we should interject here and explain for some of our listeners what Galenic ah. medicine is. Uh, Galen was a uh, you know ancient physician who followed in Hippocrates' uh, yeah. footsteps, but his main contribution was that he imagined or he proposed that the human body was composed of four liquids, which is uh, blood, flame, uh, black bile, and yellow bile. And uh, these four liquids had to be in balance and in proper uh, proportion within the body for it to be healthy. So if one of these uh, liquids was in uh, more than the others, it would lead to all kinds of illnesses. So hence the idea of bloodletting, for instance, uh, in order to relieve the body of this excess. Basically, based on this idea, in 1300s, uh, both in Europe and uh, the Middle East, this idea uh, occurred that you now this parallel was drawn between the uh, Galenic medicine and uh, social and political body. So just like human body is composed of four liquids, so the political body is also composed of four elements. Also, this is parallel to the four elements in physical world, you know, fire, uh, earth, air and water. In a way, it was an analogy, a metaphor, but I think even more than that, it was uh, a common ontology. So it makes sense that if physical world is composed of four elements and the human body is composed of four liquids, so the social life should be based on this idea of a quadrupole classification. And the main point is always the balance. So in the case of the Ottoman Empire, then starting from the 15th century, what what are the four elements of society and how are they supposed to be kept in a balance? Well, the four uh, classes, they call it the Arkana Erba, that make up the society, are men of the sword, Askeriye, uh, men of the pen, Kalemiye, uh, or Ilmiye, or uh, including both, merchants and artisans, 
make up the other uh, third one. And the farmers, the reaya, uh, the flock, is the fourth one. And is that, because you mentioned that the, the sort of Galenic metaphor for society is spread is widespread across the Mediterranean world. Is that similar to some of the, the ways that people in other parts of the Mediterranean world are conceiving of society? Yeah, uh, actually, uh, I think it was Leo Siros wrote a, a very good paper uh, about this, that Galenic medicine was quite popular with Florentine political authors, authors as well. And this was apparently a kind of a novelty compared to the more medieval uh, metaphors where you know, the state or the society was compared to basically the human body uh, in corpus, where the uh, ruler is either the heart or the head. But now with the Galenic uh, med- uh, medicine, we switch to a more, uh, at a kind of different uh, conception of society. So I have a question about the humors. Yeah. You mentioned that one of the groups of society are, are the soldiers, the men of the sword. And it seems like sometimes they are compared to phlegm. You have this quote from Mustafa Naima uh, in a chronicle of the 17th mm-hmm. century where he says, just like an old man's body is marked by an overabundance of phlegm, those states past the age of maturity are marked by an overabundance of soldiers, which requires constant spitting them out. Yes. Why? Why are soldiers like phlegm? I, I cannot say exactly, but there, it's also likened to fire uh, mm. as a you know physical element. It's, it's easier to make the connection with physical elements. So, the for instance, uh, Knalazade, the 16th century famous philosopher, says uh, one of the most beautiful ones I like. Uh, he says like the farmers are like the earth. They are the most productive ones, but still they are the ones that are trampled mm-hmm. upon. So they uh, liken the soldiers to fire, which is mm-hmm. destructive due to its destructive properties. But since we are not really familiar with this conception of this four liquids, mm-hmm. I mean, blood makes sense and be love bile too, but I, I still feel <laughs> find it difficult to translate uh, out uh, immediately the for instance, black bile, what was it? Uh-huh. What does it make sense? You know, how have they understood it? It's right. a bit of a... <laughs> well, I mean, uh, something that's striking about the case of phlegm and soldiers is is that there's actually a prescription that's added to it, which is that you need yes, to spit them yeah. out. And and I, I don't know if, if that's clear what that means. What does it mean to spit out soldiers? Well, it's, of course, the, the overabundance of of the uh, standing army, especially mm-hmm. the increasing number of uh, Janissaries, was a constant problem in 18, uh, 17th century, or from early 17th century onwards, because you know uh, we know that lots of people from the ruled classes just bought their way into Janissary corps because this was kind of the first step into uh, becoming part of the ruling elite in Istanbul. So their numbers increasingly grew. Uh, and the state would constantly, for instance, uh, in order to come, kind of reduce these numbers, they would uh, regularly do checks uh, on the rolls and see who is not there. And of course, Janissaries had ways of dealing th- with that too. But uh, yeah, it, it was a constant problem in on the treasury, uh, state treasury, having this many people on the rolls and paying them regular salaries. And actually, you know, uh, even before Naima, just uh, three, four years before Naima, Katip Chelebi makes the same point. Uh, and the main problem is overabundance of the soldiers, which is draining mm. on the treasury. So maybe soldiers are phlegm, not because there's some kind of inherent 
relationship between phlegm and soldering, but because both phlegm and soldering are things they want to have less yes, of. Yes, yes, you want to spit it out. Right. And I wonder, who are the people who are writing these things, and, mm. and who are they writing them for? Uh, the sources we used are almost exclusively Ottoman bureaucrats, who are also, you know, learned men. Uh, who has gone through classical education in philosophy and letters and all that. And they are all from the mid-ranks of bureaucracy. And most of them we know uh, because of these political writing they left behind. Like Kochi Bey, for instance, uh, one of the uh, famous ones. But we know him as famous because of the treatises he left. And we actually know little about his, for instance, background. Uh, most of them are like mid-rank bureaucrats, learned bureaucrats uh, like these. And the readers would be a similar, would be a similar yeah. group. Yeah, these were mainly circulated only within the bureaucracy. They weren't like mass-produced, obviously. So one, one question then is sort of like, did they all agree, right? I mean, did you find people arguing that actually soldiers weren't phlegm, they were something else, or, you know, or was it rather... No, the, there, is, there is almost a perfect consistency mm -hmm. there. Uh, and I think that's also partly due to the fact that they repeat each other, almost. Especially from Katip Celebi onwards, from mid-17th century, uh, I noticed at one point, and other uh, scholars also noted this, that's almost verbatim repetition, you know. Just, uh, In this borrowing. metaphor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's not given much thought. So maybe this uh, this social class is something else. Uh, there's no such elaboration. Mm. So it seems like on some level it's conventional wisdom. Exactly. But I also wonder, are they receiving medical training? Actually, yes, uh, because part of these philosophical treatises is self-care. Because, as I said, they are fashioned after Aristotelian ethics. So it starts with personal care, with personal morality, then goes on to household management, and of course, finally, the management of the city. So uh, one part, the first part, self-care, involves lengthy descriptions of how to keep your body healthy. And of course, humors are a part of that. Uh, so yeah, it's part of their own medical knowledge about themselves that also they reflect upon society and politics. So we'll be right back after a short music break with more with Ab Aran Topal and medical metaphors for society in the early modern Ottoman Empire. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson, here today with Sam Dolby and Alperen Topal, discussing how Ottoman statesmen and bureaucrats used medical metaphors and metaphors about the body to describe Ottoman state and society. So Alp, we've talked a little bit about how in the early modern period, in the 16th, 17th century, the notion of the state as a kind of humoral balance between the four elements of society became the prevalent way for, for thinking about 
collective political life. But in your work, you've also noted that there was a sort of turning point in the 18th century with the introduction of or the popularization in Ottoman of the work of historian Ibn Khaldun. So maybe you could just describe for our listeners who is Ibn Khaldun and how did his work or his theory of history kind of join the discussion about Galenic medicine and the Ottoman state? Uh, yeah, Ibn Khaldun is quite a popular figure, but uh, he he was this uh, 14th century uh, Arab historian who had this monumental work on uh, history uh, with a very, again, similarly monumental introduction, which we know as the Muqaddimah now. So he had this almost uh, theoretical take on state transformation, whereby nomadic societies would eventually be settled in cities, established states, go through several stages, and then eventually collapse. Uh, so this work, Mukaddima, uh, was not uh, popular among Ottomans to begin with, but uh, somehow, sometime in the 17th century, uh, it got introduced. There are debates as to when that happened exactly, but uh, we are almost sure that before 17th century it was not a big thing. Uh, but most famously, it was uh, popularized by Katip Celebi in mid-17th century, who used Khaldun's schema of the state going through youth, maturity, and old age, uh, in addition to the humoral analogy we have talked about before. Uh, but so sorry, was Ibn Khaldun using concepts of Galenic medicine in his own work, or was no. that some, that's something that's that's tacked on to his work? Uh, that that's not attributed to him actually. Yeah. But uh, Ottoman political authors used right. both. So right. Katip Chelib drew both on humoral uh, metaphors on Galenic medicine and also the Khaldunian uh, conception of state transformation. Uh, and the life cycle. Of yes, the, the life cycle of the state, exactly. So after Katib Chelebi, it, it obviously becomes popular. And by the turn of 18th century, at the very beginning of 18th century, in the famous history of Naima, we see that Khaldun becomes the cornerstone of this work. So he starts uh, in his lengthy introduction to his work, Naima, talks explicitly about Khaldun, cites him as the most important historian to come, and you know, then starts describing uh, stages of Ottoman history in Khaldunian terms. And of course says we are in the later stages of the life cycle of the state. So we are either, uh, this in Ottoman terms maybe I should cite, it's Sinninimuv, the youth, Sinnivukuv, uh, maturity, and Sinninhitat. Inhitat later becomes word for Ottoman decline actually. The debate in 18th century is mostly between whether Ottoman state is in its sinivukuf in maturity or it's already going over to. It's so interesting because it's a, in a way it's like a laying over of a metaphor that's based around the healthy body, right? The life cycle of a healthy body onto a metaphor that it's that's about illness, right? That's about imbalance or or you know excess of certain elements in the body. Yes, the curious thing is uh, by 18th century. Galenic uh, setup is no longer really, uh, it doesn't really matter anymore. I mean, we see it's still cited almost in every work, but that's uh, as far as it gets. It's just cited, but it's not elaborated upon. So, what do you, to what do you attribute that transformation? I think the rise of uh, the emphasis on Galenic metaphors in 17th century must have something to do with this, you know, overhaul of Ottoman uh, state and social structures, you know, lots of 
big structural changes that have been dealt with, you know, uh, Ottoman historians uh, a lot recently. Uh, and, you know, increasing uh, uh, fluidity between social classes, you know, penetration of rule, uh, ruled people to the ruling elite. Mm. That kind of problems, I think, made Galenic uh, set up this kind of thinking about, you know, classes and boundaries uh, very prevalent. Mm-hmm. But by 18th century, this goes away, this kind of concern with, you know, keeping very strict boundaries between social classes, it somehow goes away. I couldn't pinpoint exactly when that happens. And it's replaced by a question about the temporality exactly. of large-scale change, whether it's sort of in this life exactly. cycle of youth maturity and decline or proceeding in some other fashion. Exactly. I mean, with the uh, introduction of Haldun uh, and its use, uh, state almost becomes reified as this thing this body that moves through history and time, and it's talked about this monolithic thing. It becomes one body one rather body. than a balance of many elements. Yeah, yes, exactly. Interesting. And this kind of trumps over all like other kinds of uh, metaphors and explanations. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense because Ottoman uh, bureaucrats become more and more painfully aware of the fragility of Ottoman order and, of course, uh, ways of restoring the former dynamism, mm. reality, whatever So in a way, it. the metaphor becomes more rigid as, the, as people's awareness of the fragility of the state increases. Exactly. Interesting. Kaldunian thinking, uh, this thinking of state as a body, human body that ages, is a more proper metaphor. Uh, whereas Galenic thinking had all, uh, as I said, had this almost ontological uh, aspect, you know. It only makes sense that human, uh, as the, the state uh, and society follows a similar logic to human body and the physical world. But with Haldun, it's it's more of a proper metaphor that very influences, uh, really influences the thinking of state. So, do we see practical implications of these ideas in terms of the concepts being mobilized by bureaucrats? Yes, uh, actually we do, and that comes uh, late uh, in the 18th century, especially during the New Order era. Uh, for instance, uh, several, uh, a dozen bureaucrats write memorandas for Selim III, you know, thinking loudly on what to do with regard to reform. And uh, I noticed one of these guys, uh, Tatarjik Abdullah Mullah, you know, uh, has one chapter specifically for this topic. So he ascribes the decline of Ottoman Empire to this increasing sedentary life. So Ottomans were these nomadic people uh, who were quite warlike, you know, dynamic, virile. But as they started to settle in cities, uh, they uh, grow indulgent, you know, uh, indulged themselves in luxury, started be building big buildings, you know, grew too comfortable. And they lost this. So he suggests, for instance, very uh, it's, a, it's almost funny, that Sultan starts moving again in the provinces. Uh, like maybe he will spend the summer in Edirne and, uh, you know, spring in Bursa and, you know, uh, fall in Iznik, that kind of thinking. And it becomes even more emphasized. It becomes almost a state policy during the Greek revolt of early uh, 19th century. Because at this point, we see this kind of logic becoming core policy. So the logic is that uh, why are Muslims are losing against the Greeks? Because the Greeks are Bedevis, nomads. So they are still dynamic, whereas Muslims have lost that. 
several uh, Hattu Humayuns by Mahmud II ordered the population to be mobilized all the time. So no longer wearing uh, luxury clothes, huge now uh, fur coats. So you will don simple clothing. You will carry arms, uh, swords, knives, if possible, guns. And if you can afford it, you should have a horse. The state imagines to solve this problem by having the people in a state of constant mobilization. Mm. But that's, I think, the last of it mm. after the Greek crisis ends. This kind of thinking is almost gone. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting point because, I mean, especially later in the 19th century, actual people in a state of nomadism are a problem for the state in a lot of ways. Um, there are violent campaigns to settle them. And, and so the idea that the Ottomans needed to be more like nomads, it, it strikes a contrast with, with those events that happened later in that same century. Actually, it's contrast with what happened before too. You know, Ottomans were this uh, culture who were very proud of their sedentary, settled life. And nomads were always a problem for a you know, big state like Ottomans because it creates all kinds of taxation problems, you know, management problems. So actually this kind of uh, logic where you follow the Haldunian reasoning to its you know, basic logical conclusion, if we have become, if we have declined because of uh, our sedentary life, maybe we should go back to nomadism. Although it's logical, it's also very striking. And actually uh, Shukru Lujak, who wrote about this briefly, calls it a radical rethinking of the empire. Because it's the state is the Ottoman state is in such a huge crisis, even the most out of place solutions are considered. Mm. I think we can understand this mm. in that context. You know, the early 19th century crisis of the Ottoman state. You know, surrounded on several sides with very drastic problems: Russians, the Napoleon, and the Greeks. So I guess one other question then is in this 18th century moment where the bureaucrats are arguing that the state and the, the sort of elites need to become more like nomads, does that actually change the state's approach to its nomadic populations in, the, in that period? I, I wouldn't be able to say. I haven't uh, dug that deep, but I doubt it would be mm -hmm. like that. That seems more like a momentary uh, solution thought up in a... Grasping for a solution yeah, in a state of crisis. for a solution in a state of crisis, exactly. We began by this wonderful patient history of the Ottoman Empire culminating with the Tanzimat. Uh, but of course, the Tanzimat did not cure the patient, perhaps, if we want to continue with that metaphor. How, how do changing conceptions of biomedicine in the 19th century change what kind of metaphors can be used to talk about the state? To begin with, Galenic metaphors are almost completely gone. Mm -hmm. So in 18th century, you can still see people, you know, just repeating that uh, as a cliche. But in 19th century, this is completely gone. No Galenism anymore. And uh, it makes also sense because Galenic medicine uh, is in decline already in 18th century. Is this, is it, it is replaced by new medical approaches anyway, 19th century. So it's completely gone. Uh, but we see even in the early Tanzimat in 1814s, for instance, certain bureaucrats talking about veins, for instance. I had this interesting passage from Sadr Grifat Pasha, one of the prominent men of early Tanzimat, talking about uh, road structure and road reform in the, in the empire and, you know, comparing roads to the veins mm. in human body. So in order to body to work, uh, the veins shouldn't be clogged. Similarly, the road network should work perfectly in the empire for it to be healthy. 
Uh, and there are a lot of similar uh, fragmented uh, analogies. So people start talking about diseases now, you know, spread mm-hmm. of diseases. Which again and attributing makes, disease not to an imbalance of humors, but to things like germs, germs microbes, exactly. these kind of 19th century conceptions of contagion. Exactly. Um, so what do you think are the main, like what are the important differences from a conceptual point of view between the Galenic metaphor and the sort of the germs and microbes of bio, of 19th century biomedicine? Well, it's certainly a very different way of thinking about state and society. I mean, we already see that uh, with Haldun in 18th century, they started thinking about state as this one monolithic body. With the germs uh, and microbes and diseases, you start to realize there is this sense of invasion too, not simply a body getting old due to, you know, its natural lifespan and life cycle, but it's being invaded from all around with different germs and uh, diseases and contagions that are understood as coming from outside exactly in i mean there's also a certain internality right when you're talking about veins i mean you start talking about an internal architecture that's exactly so something alien enters the body Mm -hmm. and you don't catch it in time you don't realize it but it starts making you weak for instance one late 19th century author harsikli arif hikmet thinks about uh, in in influence of foreign ideas in these terms he says they are like blood disease you don't realize them they uh, penetrate your body and slowly influence everything in the body because they spread through blood veins Uh, and of course there are uh, lots of references and uh, comparisons to frengi Mm -hmm. you know the ottoman word for syphilis Mm -hmm. Uh, and syphilis is a sexually transmitted disease so comparing uh, Western influence and uh, rampant social and politicals in the empire to Frangi has this kind of, you know, sexual dimension, uh, almost sexual imagery regarding state, society and its relation with Europe. So that's one thing that's mm-hmm. obviously out mm-hmm. there too in 19th century. I also think about Zia Gokalp in late 19th, early 20th century. He talks about germs a lot and it makes sense because he was a veterinary medicine exactly. student. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the more striking passages to me, he, he writes about nomads. They're a disease that require treatment. And that seems like a kind of end note in a way to to this mingling of Galenic medicine and Ibn Khaldun to think about political thought. Uh, yes, actually, Ibn Khaldun somehow keeps his popularity. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should note that in passing too. Mm-hmm. In mid-19th century, several Ottoman historians draw a lot on Ibn Khaldun. You know that uh, Javed Pasha you know, uses his setup Although they don't take the, you know, kind of determinism implied in the Haldunian mm. uh, schema, you know, the, will the state collapse or not? Is it inevitable? That problem goes away. But this Haldunian cycle is integrated in explaining Ottoman history. Uh, Mustafa Nuri Pasha's Netaiju Lukwat does the same thing. Mm-hmm. For instance, they explain every century of Ottoman history in separate Haldunian terms, like cycles uh, being uh, experienced mm-hmm. in a state's life. Uh, but young Ottomans, for instance, reject that kind of explanation. Now, Kemal says, okay, the state is a body, but it's not a, you know, a physical corporeal body. It's a, he says, shahsmanevi, a spiritual body. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have a natural life like Ibn Haldun says. Now Kemal interjects. Mm. So if as long as we apply the proper cures, it should have uh, an indefinite life. Mm. 
So it can be prolonged as long as you approach it scientifically in a way. There's a sort of enlightenment thinking there even. But even uh, Gökalp actually relies implicitly on Ibn Khaldun uh, in his thinking when he starts comparing civilization and culture, the most central uh, concepts of his thinking. He increasingly tends to describe culture becoming more associated with nomadism, whereas civilization mm. with sedentary life, for instance. And he tries to reverse that and glorify nomadic way of life, which he thinks uh, was what gave Ottomans and Turks their power and dynamism. So one of the things you notice is that Galenic medicine and the sort of humoral theories, both of the body and of the state, are, are sort of shared between the Mediterranean world and the early modern period. Would you say the same thing is true for the biomedical metaphors of contagion and microbes in the 19th and early 20th centuries? Well, tentatively, yes. Uh, and uh, I think this uh, has we can explain it in two ways. One, of course, the spread of ideas, uh, medical ideas. And also, of course, as a homology, people start coming up with such ideas, metaphors and imagery also independently of themselves, you know, like uh, how this kind of uh, uh, social Darwinist thinking began mm-hmm. cropping up mm-hmm. everywhere in late 18th, early 19th century, even before people read uh, Spencer and similar people. So uh, I think, again, uh, it's partly due to travel and mm-hmm. uh, impact of ideas spreading from and the West. And changing medical practices And also themselves. changing practices, patterns, and uh, parallel problems experienced mm-hmm. in everywhere in the world. You know, you have this really nice point in the paper about when or if using the designator Islamic adds anything to our object of study. The topics that we've been talking about today are often thought about as Islamic political thought. Right. And so it seems to me that one of the takeaways from your observations about the use of medical metaphors is that Islamic is actually not always a useful designator. Would you say that's right? Definitely. That we think it's some, some, somehow explains something when we add the designator Islamic, but it does not. Uh, but of, of course, I should note that this doesn't mean basically that Ottomans thought was the same as whatever was being taught elsewhere. Of course, there are differences. The, the Ottomans have a particular way of th- looking at things, but this doesn't mean they are not commensurable. I mean, one uh, thing, for instance, we emphasize in our research with Einar is that uh, when Ottomans were obsessed with Khaldun and this life cycle of states in 18th century, uh, similar problems and solutions were being sought in Europe as well. You know, prior to the French Revolution, French the French were obsessed about the question of decline themselves too. Again, similar to Khaldunian explanations, which is based on a kind of political economy, British economists were thinking about history in not cyclical maybe, but again in economic political terms as progress. So they were dealing with similar problems as societies and states sharing a common world and common problems. They are certainly commensurable. Right. And looking at something like a, a sort of metaphor, a unit of a metaphor of, say, the Galenic humors or biomedicine actually brings to view some of the ways in which ways of thinking about or even adjudicating or administering the state in different parts of the world that we often separate between you know what is Islamic and what is European are actually more similar um, than we might 
otherwise notice, which isn't to say that thinking in terms of Islam or in terms of region is, is never useful, but is to say that looking at metaphor as a unit makes us able to see the similarities as well. Yes, exactly. Because thinking with metaphors, as we social scientists know, is a very humane thing. It's actually the basis of very core of thought. We always think in analogies, and then we start abstracting. And indeed, uh, the Ottomans, not surprisingly, did yes, as well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Do you catch yourself thinking in metaphors? A lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> The life cycle of this podcast has come to an end. Alp, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks again for the invitation. And for our listeners who want to find out more, uh, we recommend that you follow Alper and Topal's scholarship, both existing and forthcoming. Um, we will also post a bibliography for this episode on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. We invite you to leave comments, questions, and your own metaphors for the state. Please feel free to also join us on Facebook, where we stay in touch with our community of now over 30,000 listeners and post news about upcoming series and episodes. That's all for this episode. Until next time, take care. So our <laughs> 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 You need some more water. <laughs> <laughs> you need some more water. <laughs> okay.